Welcome! You're listening to Uncommon Sense, and I'm Doug Morgan. Just a little bit of a warning at the top of the podcast. Uh, some of the stories we're going to talk about are just a little bit hard to hear. Uh, and so you might uh, might want to just kind of consider that as we go on. Uh, not this first story. I uh, am the guy who loves the experience of buying uh, a car. Uh, I, I'm that guy that all the family members <laughs> go to when they need uh, need to get a new vehicle because they just know that experience is just kind of fun for me. I, I love to to uh, to go th- and dicker back and forth with uh, the the uh, dealers that are selling the car or the person that's selling the car. Um, I, it, I, I even love the, the fact that, you know, there's, there's about 10 different types of uh, sales tactics and I kind of, in my head, kind of count off, uh, each one as, as they don't work on me <laughs> and, and, and uh, they go to a different one. <laughs> and so it's just kind of fun. You know, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm weird that way, but that's, that's the way I'm wired. And so when I was looking for a Honda Ridgeline uh, not that long ago, I uh, was doing all my research and and I came across this one that was looking really good. It was a red one, and and it, it just the price was good, the miles was were were great, and I was thinking, wow, this is really cool. And so I I went back and forth with uh, in, in in communication with the seller and just tried to get some more information and decided, hey, this is one I definitely have to take a look at. And so. Uh, um, you know, my family and I, we, we drove out probably about an hour and a half away I would, uh, is, is about how long it took to get there and um, took a look at this thing. And when we got there, it was definitely not what we thought it was, you know, advertised to be. I mean, this thing was in tough shape. It was just kind of beat up and put away wet and, and was not exactly how the seller had uh, communicated to us that the condition of it and so that kind of leads me into a discussion today about journalism and i know journalism can be a really easy target i tend to not talk a lot about the press um and and the major media just because it is such an easy target but you know today we just have to kind of do it and and i know if you look back at the history of journalism uh, I love Benjamin Franklin's quote. Now, Benjamin Franklin was an early and forceful advocate for presenting all sides of an issue, and um, and even in writing, for instance, in 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 his an apology for printers, uh, he he quotes this. It says, "When truth and error have fair play, the former is always an overmatch." for the latter. Just a great quote by Ben there. And then uh, if you go on just a little bit later on in uh, about ni- about 1798, the Federalist Party is in control of Congress at this point uh, and they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts uh, designed to weaken the opposition press. Uh, it prohibited the publication of, get this, false, scandalous, and malicious writings, unquote, <laughs> against the government and made it a crime to voice any public opposition to any law or presidential act. I mean, this 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 part of the the act was was in effect actually all the way to 1801. So it was in in, in there for you know, I don't know two or three years there. So uh, if you if you look at that that where something that is considered false, scandalous, and malicious is banned and Ill- illegal. Kind of remind you of something a little bit that they're trying to do today. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let's let's continue. Uh, and 
in the 19th century, news uh, reporting was expected to be relatively neutral by that point, uh, or at least factual. Um, you know, whereas editorial sections openly relay the opinion of the publisher, um, you know, edit editorials often were accompanied by editorial cartoons. You may have seen m many of those, which kind of lampooned, you know, the publisher's opponents. Um, but but the the point is that there were there was news reporting, which was you know here's the facts, man. Uh, this is what happened. This is what we know. This is what we can prove. Whatever, and uh, and then there was a, there was opinion, and that opinion was put in the editorial or opinion section, uh, and so you knew you that's what you were getting. You you weren't getting j just the news. You were getting somebody's uh, opinion of the news, and then starting in the uh, about the 1890s, a few very high profile. Metropolitan uh, newspapers uh, engaged in what they called yellow journalism, and they did this to increase sales. Uh, they, you know, they emphasized sports, uh, sex, uh, scandal, and and sensationalism. And the leaders of this style of journalism in New York City were Randolph, uh, William Randolph Hearst, and Joseph Pulitzer. Uh, kind of ironic if you if you think about it. The Pulitzer Prize uh, is named after. Joseph Pulitzer, and it's a journalism award, and yet he's one of the ones that started this yellow journalism type of thing, where uh, you know just trying to to interject stuff into the news and, and overhype it and do all these different things uh, in order to try to, to drive up sales. And they have basically a goal or an, or a bias, a, a, something that they they want to try to do with the news and not just present the news. So where is journalism today? Well, re researchers from Arizona State University and Texas A&M University questioned 462 financial journalists around the country. Um, because I, it is my opinion, and I think I can back this up here, that, that journalism has really turned the corner and it is um, very overtly liberal. And, and, and I think that, that even this study right here shows us, because if you were to take all the different types of journalism, financial journalism is probably one of the ones that you're going to get the least opinion about, right? Uh, so, so here are these two universities. Uh, they questioned 462 financial journalists around the country, and even the supposedly hard-nosed financial reporters who were, you know, are, uh, were, were, they were overwhelmingly liberal. Uh, of the 462 surveyed, s uh, over 17% called themselves very liberal, while over 40% described themselves as somewhat liberal. So when you add it up, that's that's almost 60% that admit to being left of center. Um, you know, along with that, another th over 37% claim to be moderate. And you know what that means. <laughs> moderate just means, especially when it comes to like a, a financial advisor or journalist, uh, they're financially conservative, but they're liberally, uh, they're socially liberal, and so you, you add you add that in the, into the mix as well. Well, you know, it, it kind of leaves out those those conservatives, um, and so if you and and if you look at at the the poll and the, that was done here, the conservatives journalists, in fact, made up just a mere less than half a percent uh, that would call themselves very conservative. While just 3.94%, so that's less than 4%, said they were somewhat conservative. So if you add that together, 
we're talking about less than 5%, 4.4% of the total amount of these journalists, these financial journalists, would lean to the right. So a study conducted by the Center of uh, Public Integrity during the uh, 2016 election revealed that more than 96% of political donations from journalists went to the Hillary Clinton campaign. <laughs> That's, oh, that is amazing. But as, as I showed here, even with the financial guys, this is exactly the numbers that break out. About 4% are conservative of, of journalism, uh, journalists and 96% lean uh, more toward the liberal end of things. So when we look at today, we look at journalism, we see that it's gone from kind of an objective reporting style, which objective reporting just means uh, that um, you, know, you, you look at observation of measurable facts. Things that you can just say, hey, this is the facts, man. You know, th this is what happened. You're not interjecting, you know, your your personal bias into it. This you're you're presenting to the listener, the consumer, what is happening. Uh, that's objective reporting, and it's gone from that to what we call subjective reporting. What that means is you interject personal opinions, assumptions. Um, you know, even even uh, your beliefs into the reporting, and that is subjective, and that's what we're seeing a lot of nowadays. That's what almost everything we see uh, entails. So, um, I, I, I will even say at this point, okay, all media have a bias. Okay, all media have a bias. I mean, we see that in a lot of things in life. We even see that, like even like Christian literature and even like Bible translations, believe it or not, uh, have, have a bias. They, they do. They, and they, they, it may be a theological bias, you know, like uh, the difference between you know, being a Calvinist or an Arminianist. Uh, when you interpret a word from a different language, whether it be Hebrew or Greek or whatever, um, you're, you're going to have a little bit of a bias um, depending on your theology. Um, knowing what those biases are helps you to determine the truth. And, you know, just because someone has a bias doesn't mean that they're not telling the truth. I mean, <laughs> you know, Red Ridgeline guy that was selling, trying to sell me the truck, you know, he could have told me the truth, uh, but he didn't. Uh, he, you know, if he would have told me the truth, that would not have fit his narrative of you need to buy this truck. And, and that was his narrative. You need to buy the truck. You need to come see the truck. And so he left out truths in order to get me to believe a certain thing. He had a bias. The media has a narrative. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is go look at, like, for instance, UC Berkeley has a course right now that is entitled Jur Journalism for social change. That's the name of the course. Let me let me read to you one student's um, account of of this course, and and they're and they're you know they're liking. I mean, this this is an, an account that UC Berkeley is actually advertising in order for you to, to get uh, to take their course. The student says, "Quote: Earlier, I had an impression that journalism was meant to mirror exactly." what is happening in society, giving people a reflection of what they're doing. This course has made me realize 
that there are always solutions. And writing about such stories can make journalism a tool for social change. All right, did you catch that? A tool for social change. The major media outlets have a narrative that all stories have to fit in order to get covered because you have journalists that are liberal, you have them thinking that you know it is up to me to inflict social change on society <laughs> and this is why I'm a journalism uh, you know student or you know I'm a journalist if they've gone to that point I, it is this is this is why I'm a journalist is because I want to make a difference in the world you hear that a lot right and so the major media outlets they have a narrative that all stories have to fit in order to be covered and these stories can be true or they cannot be true. I mean, if you, if you remember the story of President Trump uh, calling, being, um, you know, the, the fact that he, he called White House uh, or white supremacists from the White House, he, he called white supremacists good people. Do you remember that story? The problem with that story is it wasn't true. Here's the quote, um, and, and I'm going I'm to quote it to you. So he says right here, quote, so you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. And you had people, and I'm not talking about neo-Nazis or white supremacists, because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And they were good people is what he called them. That he's talking about the protesters that were protesting the removal of a statue and the renaming of a park. That's who he was talking about when he ta- talks about the good people. He's not talking about the neo Nazis and the white supremacists that were there, you know, creating havoc. That's that's not what who he's talking about, and he makes that specific. So, you know, the narrative was that President Trump is a racist, and so what do we do as as the major media, we cover the story, whether it's true or not true. In this case, it wasn't true, but we're going to cover it because it fits our narrative. So why do some stories become national stories and picked up by the major media outlets and others don't? Well, does the story fit one of our liberal narratives is, is the question. And let me give you an example. About three weeks ago, the only thing you heard from the major media was the shooting in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Terrible, terrible thing. And why? Why was that what we heard just constantly for, for a number of days? Well, initially it was thought that this was a white male killing Asian women. The narrative is that white American males are racist and hate Asian women. And, and here was a white male that killed both Asians and women. So, hey, we're going to run with the story, except that it turned out not to be true. It turned out that he killed more than just Asian women. And it was not a racial thing at all, but he he was a sex addict and he wanted to he he he, he had this idea that if he killed these these women that uh, that performed these sex acts while he was getting his massages or whatever, that uh, that that would help him put an end to this sex addiction. So as soon as the facts started to come out, then suddenly you didn't hear anything about this story anymore, did you? Let me give you another uh, story that doesn't fit the major narrative and doesn't get covered. 
the narrative is that the police are racist and police brutality always affects blacks and not whites. That's the narrative. Have you heard about the Daniel Shaver case? Now, I, be honest, I hadn't heard about this one until recently either. And you can you can look at these these examples. There's examples of these uh, videos on um, on YouTube and some other places. You can find them uh, if you look. Uh, and the body camera footage of this is is uh, is available. And he was basically just shot. Here's here's a guy who was shot to death on his knees, crawling, shot to death for no reason whatsoever. And why didn't you hear about it? Because he was white. I mean, if, if, if he had been a black man being shot here, you would, this would have been covered all over the place. But you haven't heard about it, have you? Instead, all you've heard about is the George Floyd case. And why? Because it fits two liberal narratives. One, that racist police target blacks, right? And the other one, racist police kill blacks. Except, statistics and the facts, even in this case, don't show this to be true. There was never any evidence that this was even an example of racist violence. There isn't, any, there isn't anything that says that this was a racially motivated act. There, there doesn't even seem to be a case beyond reasonable doubt because that's that's the standard here. You gotta you gotta prove it beyond reasonable doubt that this that this was indeed murder, and yet there's there's definitely not that case available to be made. The trial of Derek Chauvin is is just starting, and it's and it's going to be a win-win for the the major media. You know, if convicted then it proves that the narrative is true, right? These narratives are true. And look, you know, this Derek Chauvin, he's, he, he's, he's a racist and, and he did this and he murdered this guy. And, and so, you know, this, this just proves that the police are racist and they target blacks and, and they kill, kill blacks. But if acquitted, it pro- it, it's even better, to be honest with you, for them. Because if acquitted, it proves that we have a long way to go before, you know, we hold police accountable for their racist actions. Another example of major media not covering a story because it doesn't fit their liberal narratives is the Muhammad Anwar case. And you, again, you can see you can see the video. But Muhammad Anwar was a, a man who was about 66 years old. He lived in Washington D.C. and was originally from Pakistan. He immigrated to the U.S. in 2014 and has been working as an Uber Eats driver. Uh, and two black teenage girls tasered him while trying to carjack his vehicle. Again, this is a very difficult video to watch. And it, ju- and it just, when I saw it, it, it just irked me to no end. They literally tased this guy. He's standing half in his car, half out, and they tase him and they take off with his vehicle with him still hanging out of the car. So he's half in, half out. They take off with his vehicle and they crush him as they sideswipe a lamppost. Then you, you, can, you, can, uh, you can see and you can hear the car crash and it comes to rest flipped on its side. And after the wreck, they, they, tr- they get out of the car. You, you, there's, there's, the video is, is all there. 
and they they try to escape from the car and are they worried about him no they're worried about their cell phones there's no regard for the man they just murdered they just want to know where their cell phones are the 13 and 15 year old black girls were charged with felony murder and armed felony with a taser and it, it just is, is another example of the 7,500 stolen vehicles in Washington, D.C. every year. And the Democratic mayor there, Washington, D.C., she thinks that defunding the police is going to help this. Mayor, uh, mayor Muriel Bowser is, <laughs> she's, she's a piece of work. And her response to this case was to tweet about not leaving your car running. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. If this had been a black individual killed by two white teens, then you would have heard about it from major media to no end. All right, one last example of a story that will not get national attention from the major media because it does not fit the liberal liberal narrative is the attack in, in New York City just the other day. And the narrative is, is whites are racist and violently attack agents. I mean, I mean, you, 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 you've even seen the T-shirts, you know, and stop Asian hate and all this kind of stuff, right? You know, the major basketball players and all this kind of stuff are wearing them. And, and so this is the narrative. Uh, this act is from a black man. So guess what? They're not going to cover it. Uh, it's a, it's a, a 65-year-old. Asian woman is just walking down the sidewalk in front of a secure building and she's actually on her way to church believe it or not and a black man walking the other direction comes up to her and kicks her in the chest knocking her to the ground she kicks her so hard she's knocked to the ground he then steps forward and stomps on her face and on her head he then kicks her again in the face hard enough to bounce her head off the pavement. And again, he kicks her in the head, knocking her head against the pavement and again begins to walk away. And what's, what's even worse about this video? Two security guards watch the whole thing just feet away and absolutely do nothing. In fact, they do more than do just do nothing. They then close the glass doors of the building without even helping the woman at all. Why is this not an, a national news story? Because this was a black man, and it does not fit the narrative that whites are racist and attack Asians. Even though the statistics show that young black males perpetrate the most violence against Asians, that's not the narrative. These and other stories are not covered and talked about because, as a journalist, it is up to you to promote social change, isn't it? Your narrative to social change is that all of our country's problems stem from a history of white supremacy. Your narrative is in inequality is a sign of racism, right? You know, not that it's a product of individual choice. You know, the American Enterprise Institute put out a chart just the other day that compares median household income to share of births to unwed mothers. And the... the Information is taken directly from the National Census Bureau and the National Center of Health Statistics, and it's for 2019. And it says this, it says, Asians, their median household income is $98,000 a year. And 
and the number of of births to unwed mothers, 11.7%. Not very high. Whites are next. Seven, over 76,000 is the median income for whites, and 28% of births to unwed mothers. Hispanics, a little bit lower, 56,000 per year is the median household income, and 52%, over half Hispanics, are born to unwed mothers. But get this, blacks, $54,000 median income, and get this, 70% of all blacks are born to unwed mothers. Now, will you see this covered by anyone other than Ben Shapiro? No, it doesn't fit the liberal narrative that all suffering in the U.S. is because of racist systems in this country. The First Amendment says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Why did they place this amendment into the Constitution? Because the free flow of information is crucial to a free society. The major media better stop abusing their freedom if, they're go- if we're going to stay a free society. And you may agree, you may disagree with this. I would love to hear your comments. You can always email me at dougmorgan at uncommonsensepodcast.com. Uh, and you can always go to un- uncommonsensepodcast.com uh, and you can see our website there. You can see different episodes and get the latest or go back into the archives or visit our store and help support the podcast by getting some merchandise. And that would be awesome. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>